So I'm moving to a new town nearby, and I was talking to a landlord, um, which I, I hate doing it. Oh, who, who, <laughs> who would enjoy it? Yeah, well, it, for, for whatever reason, sometimes I surprise myself at how good I am at talking to landlords. Um, so I sent in this, like... <laughs> Using your words instead of your fists. <laughs> well... It's kind of like a combination of coming off as like really professional, really understanding, uh, and then going for the guttural. Yeah. Yeah. So like I, I'm talking to this landlord and she's like, well, you're a perfect candidate. Uh, and we chat, we schedule a time and then she mentions no pets. And I'm like, well, uh, I have a dog. <sighs> And then it's uh, that turned into a whole conversation where she she wanted me to look at it from the landlord's point of view, which um, <laughs> it's okay. Can you fit your head that it, far up your ass? Uh, well, apparently, yeah. Um, but I uh, I don't know. My whole problem is that like the only point of view that like as like in general discussion that we ever have talking about. Renting is the point of view of landlords for the most part. Um, and landlords, for whatever reason, are, well, I know the reason, but for whatever reason, are never asked to look at it from the tenant's point of view. Right. Um, so she does this whole thing, basically says no, and then I'm like, well, okay. Um, so I, I won't, you know, I won't try to rent this. Uh, but I do just want to tell you, uh, as a jam, as a general matter, uh, so she said that, um, landlords are liable for what tenants dogs do. So I, I was like, that's, that's, that's just not true. not true. Yeah. It's just not true. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> 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 that's just bullshit. Um, and then I, you know, so I said that and then I, and then I told her, okay, so like, I, you know, I listened and I understand your landlord's point of view. Um, you know, I get that. And I, you know, I want to take care of the house I live in, too. So, you know, I kind of, you know, I understand it. I have that capacity. And, yeah. I, and I told her, like, you should understand that for people who have dogs, when you go and check the little box on Craigslist or Zillow, that reduces your options by 80%. Yeah. Um. And there was a moment there where she, like, I heard it. She was audibly shocked when I said that. Um, which just goes to show that landlords really don't fucking care um, that well, it is all about the money. It, so, I mean, that's the thing. That yeah, they, they yeah. They don't well, want to. They make no yeah. effort to. So. Yeah, they're constantly whining that we need to look at it from their point of view. But, like, uh, when she said that, you know, by the end of it, because I had like take the, and the thing is like, I made us equals in that conversation when I said that I'm not going to rent. Yeah. So suddenly she didn't have that power over me and, um, you know, and then she was, and then she was sort of like, oh, well, you know, we, uh, you know, we, I, I can reconsider. I can think about this more. Um, and, uh, and I told her, no, I am, you know, still not interested. And, uh, you know, by the end of it, she did say, you know, thank you for this exchange. Uh, and I think I'm going to be a little more understanding about people, uh, you know, trying to rent with dogs. I'm like, 
Okay. It's just a, you know, minor success, minor interpersonal success. Yeah. That's just minor my frustrating forward, story so. of the day. Oh. Yeah. Um, all landlords are still bastards. They are. But, oh. um, they're human beings too, but you gotta, yeah, you know, you gotta be a human being to be a bastard. So That's dogs true. aren't. Yeah. Dogs are not bastards. There's another uh, interesting thing going on where landlords don't matter at all. Uh, and I think, you know, you wanted to talk about it. Uh, it was the autonomous zone that's been set up in a small portion of Seattle. I did want to talk about that. Um, I mean, from what I hear so far, it's um, some mixture of folks who believe they are uh, really like the starting stone of the revolution right now. And there's a lot of folks who see it as this sort of rebirth of like a hate Ashbury type area. And then there's some folks who see it kind of as a weird little touristy spot that they can, uh, I think, I think in some way actually make some good optics where they can show it's like, yeah, look right now, you know, a lot of, uh, Seattle is dealing with tear gas and shit like that. We're not yeah. right here. And people have described it as being sort of like a street fair where it's like there's street um, performers, there's music, there's like food. And it's like, there is some yeah. sense of just kind of like, well, so, we're here for a short while. Cause I think no one there really believes it's going to be long lasting. I mean, we're expecting police to no. roll in and do a like deoccupying well, stuff the way they did during Occupy. They're going to come in. Probably well, part like, of it is that there are definitely people there who are trying to co-opt it. And like they, they advocated to let police back into the precinct. So like that's already happened. Um, and I can say because, uh, you know, I, I think it's clear enough that, like, you know, I live in sort of like the western part of the of the U.S. So I actually took a trip to uh, to see this place myself, um, and I can confirm basically all of that. That, uh, you know, just from my seeing it, uh, it, it was just kind of like a it was kind of a block party. Like that, that's mostly what it was. It was just a big block party. And there was some serious, like there's serious stuff that goes on is like, you know, they have, the, they have barricades. Like it's a real mix of like, it, it's mostly like liberals who are starting to radicalize, starting to radicalize because of their new experiences, getting tear gassed and beaten by the cops. Yeah. Um, I'd say that they're definitely, they're definitely anarchists active there because they're the ones who are setting up a, most of the, the mutual aid systems. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like cooking the food, like setting up like food, food kitchens and medic teams. And, um, and they also at nighttime, they have, uh, armed, uh, barricade guards. Yeah. Um, largely yeah. because the space has been like very actively threatened by, uh, essentially stochastic, right-wing terrorism yeah so. no, i've seen a few pretty horrifying posts online of right-wingers being like hey guys there's a bunch of anarchists they got no cops there right now we can go in and just tear this place apart yeah um, well and some more like specific they, threats of people being like hey there's you know yeah. a lot of like anarchist girls up there we can just go in there in the dark at night and there's like really those sort of comments being made by some right-wingers and it's that's that's honestly scary shit for me to hear fucking nasty yeah, yeah. well I I don't think really I think it's a lot of bluster from them. I don't think they're actually going to do it since they haven't actually done it yet. 
Yeah. Um, but I mean, which is frequently how it is. I mean, if you want to look at a real, like, kind of more autonomous police-free zone, you can look at Atlanta right now, where it looks like for the last <laughs> few days, the police have just not shown up to work because one of their members got arrested for murdering somebody. And so oh. they're just like, oh, shit, we're not showing they up should, to work. We're not answering 911 calls day. anymore. Yeah, and so far it sounds like uh, people in Atlanta are just kind of like, uh, well, we need, like, you know, medical services. We need, like, 911 calls answered for that. Um, but we don't really need the cops to come back. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that, you know, we, we had have, did have someone, you know, charged down there, it's, it's still pretty rare. I mean, still these cops who have, you know, we've, yeah. we've had, we've had 120 police murders since, uh, George Floyd was killed in the last yeah, 20 days. We've had 120 murders, um, Jesus. at the hands of the police. And that's not counting the number of folks across the country, uh, black folks who've been, um, hung from trees in public places yeah um which for some reason all the cops investigating it keep calling them suicides and uh yeah. to quote uh at least three black friends i've seen post stuff uh black people do not self-lynch um no but the fact there has been this kind no, of concerted movement amongst police departments to say that these uh you know these 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 just straight up got classic style lynchings have been suicides it really it suggests that maybe there is some police involvement in all of these and it would come as no surprise because i mean we've known for years uh and this is confirmed by an fbi report um that white supremacists have been infiltrating the police uh for decades um and it, it you know and also they didn't have to try hard because police forces are founded in white supremacist, you know, enforcement mechanisms. So, yeah. but I, I think what you're getting at though is, uh, it's kind really of the main point of what we want to talk about today, which is, it's really that, fucking hard to prosecute police. It's really hard to like hold them. I mean, I don't like the word accountable, but like, it's really hard to hold them accountable. Yeah. for their actions um yeah so we're going to talk about that uh this is uh the long road and i'm sasha and i'm trevor uh and today's episode the impunity of law and order uh you know we're, we're going to talk about the different ways within the legal system that uh we have to hold cops accountable right yeah um to be clear none of them work uh and none of them come close to anything that might be considered accountability for their actions um but there's been a lot of talk uh in the wake of these protests of changing rules right so so a lot of these protests had some rather radical demands like abolish the police well suddenly that's defund the police which, I mean, um, I've heard some arguments one way or the other of is that actually better because it keeps people protesting because it's it perceived by a lot of liberals as a more reasonable demand that, I mean, I mean, I've got my liberal dad in on that saying like, yeah, we should defund the police and put the money somewhere else. These cops have way too much money. And yeah. I think when you were able to kind of get that allyship from liberals as far as some demand, it makes it a lot easier to stay out in the streets as opposed to yeah, abolish the police. Maybe. Which, I mean, we're not – this is – as much as I want this to be a revolutionary moment, it's not 
it is it something. Is, though. Uh, in in a way, I mean, it's not something that I believe is going to sustain into some sort of you know glorious people's revolution. I agree with that. Yeah, but it is something that I think is opening enough people's minds, uh, opening people's eyes to yeah. seeing like what's actually going on when it comes to uh, police forces in this country. I, it's. I think it's definitely created what I think is going to be a permanent shift in people's understanding of police policing and their relationship with their government. Um, but I, I do, I, I want to push back on this idea that we need to be moderating our, uh, our rhetoric. So here's the problem. And th this is one thing that when you grow up as a liberal, like, you know, like we did, we've really gotten this like, ingrained in us through through years of um indoctrination basically which is that uh we have to sound reasonable yeah. when we you know we have to sound we have to sound like the reasonable ones and so um that has never worked for the left frankly um what it has done it is it is like that becomes the starting point for negotiation and i i believe that like Abolition by itself is the moderate position here. Oh, yeah. People don't perceive it that way, but that is the moderate position. And if people... I mean, I saw that comment come up repeatedly talking about ICE when they were starting to have these concentration camps down on the border. Uh, I mean, not even just under Trump, but like previously under the Obama administration. People are saying like the moderate goal should be abolish ICE. The leftist goal should be prosecute ICE. <laughs> Um, I, I even think prosecution by itself is also a moderate goal. I, and in fact, I wouldn't even call that moderate. I would call that just like, yeah, you should fucking prosecute people for like, if you're going to have a system of prosecution, then you should do it that way. Um, no, what I'm saying is the, the most extreme position on the left is kill all cops. Yeah. Um, and the position between that and, uh, and ab abolish the police, just abolish the police, um, is re-educate the police. You know, so in addition to abolishing, you know, abolition, we also need to have like essentially kind of a system uh, of like deep, you know, depoliticization. Um, and frankly, that is the position that I land on. Um, um, yeah, I agree. But, uh, I think that that is probably the best option at this point. Uh, I've seen a lot of folks talking about. Um, the idea of like, well, maybe if you actually just expand the amount of hours police have to go through before they can actually become officers and talk about, yeah. well, have it be a four-year plan. Have it be they go to school for four years. And yeah, that's tempting on some level, but yeah. I think that that's not going to really address what is the root of the problem, which is exactly. that police can just get away with stuff. And and yeah. and not in the um, sense that a lot, I mean, a lot of folks say like, well, cops get away with committing crimes. And well, yeah, but 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 we've talked about this and the issue is yeah. not even so much that cops get away with committing crimes. It's that the system is set up in such a way that when cops do it, it's just not crime. Basically, yeah, um, I think, you know, we yeah, we need to keep this as a systemic critique. And that's what really irks me about the change in language is that when you shift from abolish the police, which is a criticism of the institution, to defund the police, that becomes a criticism of their resources. 
and police budgets are a problem, but they are not the problem. And we have the the same, problem is the police themselves. And we have the same issue we talk about, you know, should we just be re-educating these officers or having them do more schooling? And it's still saying that, well, this institution yeah. should exist. We just need, you know, right. we need better people. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so I think our point with like sort of with the last episode on police and then in this one that we're going to get into um, that when every single aspect of this institution is broken, um, you, you, can't, you can't like you can't improve the, it. You can't improve yeah, a system as broken as yeah. one is. Um, all, all you can do is get rid of it and try something new and different. And the way I present it to people who seem kind of skeptical of this is imagine that you, you've, you know, there's no government and you're setting up your government and you're setting up a society and you're writing a constitution and you think there's some things, bad things that people do. And you think that there should be people to respond to like mental health crises uh, and there should be people who respond to like car accidents and stuff. My question to the person, you know, my question to you and everybody else is, would you create an institution that is the same as the police we have today or even similar to it? And I think that I, I like, if you actually sit and think about it, I think that most people's honest answer is going to have to be no. Um, and I've seen we could actually maybe try different things. I've seen sort of rational conversations coming out of the left about that, talking about like, well, imagine that you actually had, you know, uh, you, you, you're getting pulled over because your brake light is out. You pull over to the side of the road and this guy walks up to your car with a toolbox and says, oh, hey, by the way, your brake light's out. Can I fix that for you really fast? And you say, oh, yes, please. Like, OK, it'll take maybe a couple minutes. Um, actually, while here, if you got time, want me to check your oil as well? And you go, yeah, sure. It's been a little <laughs> while. And the person sits there and chats yeah. you for a while and then sends you on the way, as opposed to giving you a ticket for your brake light being out. Yeah. You can then go contest in some court somewhere. Right. And so the first, like the thing you described though, like that fundamentally makes everybody safer on the road. Yes. It fixes the problem immediately. immediately. It immediately makes everybody safer. Um, and like that may not work exactly for every single situation, but, um, guns don't either. Uh, and what we have right now is guns working in every single situation. And that is not a good thing. So, um, we don't have to come up with a perfect replacement. We just have to come up with something that's better. And frankly, that is not hard to do. Um, well, yeah. I think we're, so we're skirting a little don't close. Don't moderate your rhetoric. I think we're, we're skirting a little <laughs> close to what we want to talk about in the third part of this uh, yeah. triptych on cops, which is going to be what are the other options? And I don't think we're quite yeah. there yet because we still haven't yeah. fully delved into how broken this system is. We've kind of talked a bit about our last cop episode about like where the cops came from, how they act, a lot of the uh, horrible things we've seen come from police. And, yeah, but, and and what they're allowed to do, what powers they really have, what their responsibilities actually are, instead of what we were told they were, you know, as elementary school kids. But that previous discussion so, still allows this conversation to be framed in a way that says, like, well, that's, you know, what cops are, and because there are some bad yeah. apples, they get away with this. And I think that's where we want to talk about today is that these bad apples are not byproducts of the system. They are... Uh, well, I mean, they're getting away with it is not an accident. Yeah. Yeah. Um, police getting away with brutality, with violations of civil rights... Uh, with, you know, with everything illegal they, they do or what we would consider illegal. But I would argue that if 
if as a system they get away with it all the time, then it's not actually really illegal for them. So, just I'm picturing uh, as Richard Nixon, you know, if the cops do it, it's not illegal. But um, but that's really scarily yeah. accurate. So it's not. Well, I mean, that argument, like you can you can <laughs> say that you can say that in a supportive way, or you can say that in a critical way. And I'm saying that in a critical way. Uh, you know, the cops can't break a can't break the law, and that's a fucking problem. Yes. Um. So. So how, um, so how so yeah so what are so options say, currently? If we, yeah. if I have uh uh you know I see my neighbors outside having a fight one night and I go out there and try and calm them down and as I'm trying to do that cops show up and immediately separate everyone back into their homes except for like you know the one black neighbor who they take out and they beat the shit out of in the street. What options does he have? Yeah. So, um, there are three different routes for, uh. And, we're, and I'm going to say, quote, hold, like, say co- holding cops accountable, even though I hate the phrase and that's not actually what this does. But we're just going to, you know, we're just going to talk about it kind of like it does. Yeah. So there are three different routes to holding police accountable under the, under the American uh, legal system. Uh, the first route is through the administrative uh, branch, the administrative bureaucracy, right? Yeah. Um, the second one is uh, through criminal proceedings. Um, and the third one is through civil proceedings. So I'm going to start with the administrative one. And this is uh, one of the, you know, criticism, you know, when you hear people complain about police action, frequently the like dishonest chuds on the internet say, well, you should file a complaint. Yeah. Well, filing a complaint is this administrative method. So uh, just to remind people, um, the way the government is structured is the executive branch uh, is in charge of a large bureaucracy, and that large bureaucracy uh, operates on uh, an area of law called administrative law. Um, and it's very complicated. There are lots of rules that they make, regulations they make, uh, and one of the fundamental tenets of administrative law in America and within the states uh, generally is that there's a huge amount of discretion for bureaucrats um, to apply the law as they see fit. So long as it's like within a very general understanding uh, of the law. Um, So filing a complaint with the police department is inside the system because the police themselves are a bureaucratic agency, right? Yes. Uh, Of the, of the executive branch. So that's kind of what we're operating in. Uh, And because of that, um, the legislature did not design the system of accountability. Judges did not design the system of accountability. Um, The agencies assigned to reviewing police complaints are the ones who designed it. And overwhelmingly, the agencies that are assigned to review complaints against police are the same fucking police departments that that those officers uh, work for. Yeah, I mean, the so, majority of these departments are actual groups of other police officers or people who are employed by yeah. the police who are, in theory, supposed to look at these agencies, uh, you know, bad actors within the system and say, you know, like, okay, we're going to do some sort of investigation, determine if you did something wrong. And yeah. uh, pretty much across the board, they don't. Yeah. So let's take, for example, um, in Chicago, uh, since 1967, there have been 125,000 complaints against 25,000 former and current officers. 
uh, in the Chicago Police Department. Uh, in 90% of those complaints, the police found of themselves mm -hmm. uh, that the complaints were false or lacking sufficient evidence. And that phrase, lacking sufficient evidence, is extremely, it's doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Boy, it is. Um, you know, so like essentially one person saying that a cop did that to me can easily be called lacking sufficient evidence because witnesses aren't reliable unless they're, you know, Police. testifying <laughs> for the state. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, these systems are incredibly opaque. Uh, we really don't know what standards they use for it. Uh, there doesn't, you know, there's no like consistent standard of evidence. Um we just don't know how it operates uh, because the departments themselves get to design it. And uh, in most police departments, most police departments are pretty small, right? In, yeah. in America, you might have like one officer who's assigned to reviewing all of these things. Uh, larger police departments uh, will typically have like an internal investigations division. Who, um, who, I mean, you, you probably know if you've watched any movie, but like IA is despised by cops. Um, the, the police generally yeah. hate internal um, affairs. Like the people who actually are investigating which, them, who are in theory, they're, you know, brothers and sisters in blue, uh, are despised. They are usually fired if they actually really seriously try and prosecute fellow officers. And occasionally they're just shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, of course, tons of them are super, like, lax against you know, against other cops, like internal in investigations is frequently something cops do after they've worked in the force for a while. So, um, like, so they're hated by other cops, but they're also one of the mechanisms of protecting those cops from, you know, from, uh, accountability, I would argue, uh, because well, yes, given, because they get this sort yeah. of uh, veneer of uh, acceptability, legitimacy. legitimacy, where yeah. they can look at it and say, you know, "Well, no, 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 we had IA investigate this. It turns out there was actually nothing going on, or you know, hey, we had to investigate it. Yeah, maybe there's some scrupulous stuff. We've you know reprimanded the officers." Yeah, so that's just a fundamental issue with the way these investigations work inside the agencies. Um, but there's another so, thing that people have talked about too, which is the idea of having these like civilian review boards, um, where they're having, yeah, you know, and, so, and those, the idea is like, they're, they're not created by the police departments necessarily, but they're created by the cities. Um, or in some cases, you yeah. know, like there are lobbyists from different, like, you know, rights groups who are trying to have a city put this system in place, usually copying yeah. one from one city and popping it in somewhere else and. Yeah. And so frequently the way those review boards work, though, is they're not they're not democratically elected by the people of the city. Uh, usually the members are appointed by like the mayor or the city council and uh, they don't actually have the power to discipline officers. They only have the power to make recommendations for disciplining officers. And that's one that actually I read a great article um, earlier today by oh, what's her name was a. Uh, Andrea Damewood. I'll have to pull this up one second. Uh, yeah, Andrea Damewood. And uh, she wrote this article that was talking about uh, her time working on one of these civilian review boards, actually, uh, for uh, PPB, for Portland Police Bureau. And yeah. uh, what her frustration that she expresses in the article is, is that throughout her entire time working there, every time she'd recommend a case up, you know, to like actually have it be, you know, a prosecutor, say, you know, what are the actual, like, you know, discrepancies we're seeing? 
Um, what they have to base it off of is just, okay, well, with the police training that we are giving right now, did the officer follow their training? And the thing is, cops usually do follow their training because they're trained to be shitty. And their training is usually pretty yeah. sparse. And so what she talks about in this article is having officers, and she's like, yeah, I know this person's a racist piece of shit. I'm paraphrasing. That's definitely not her words. Um, <laughs> I know this person's a racist piece of shit. Yeah, I yeah. know they probably beat the crap out of this black kid. But yeah, technically, he said at some point he feared for his life. And under, you know, PPB standards, if you say you fear for your life, you can use force to actually defend yourself. And so under these standards can't really do anything about this officer even though i personally working on the like the ppb like uh, yeah. uh civilian review board think that this person should be i mean reprimanded disciplined, disciplined. Yeah. and uh i mean the article is just her talking about the, basically why she quit because it was exhausting to her to have these officers who she knew were the quote-unquote bad apples but who there was nothing she could do to bring them to any sort of accountability because yeah. the system in place was one that said, well, did they follow all the rules that we wrote? We being the police department. And right. those rules are either written so broadly that officers can get everything or are written so specifically that they can say, like, well, yes, in a situation where uh, – Someone drives a car slightly too fast. The officers, they are allowed to use deadly force because a car is considered to be a deadly weapon. And so there are situations like that where there are these what I consider to be kind of stopgap measures, um, like creating civilian review boards and putting them into cities. That is another, I think, kind of like liberal, happy think Band-Aid where it's, you know, we're yeah. going to have this system. I mean, Go. And it's not even a Band-Aid because it doesn't even like help at all uh mostly it just provides cover for police misconduct by again giving it that um veneer of uh legitimacy you know, veneer of legitimacy um you know if the civilian review board uh reviewed it then you know that gets rid of the conflict of interest of having the cops investigate themselves yeah and which, I, is, and yeah. which i think is very comforting to police or, I mean, I think should be comforting to them, but cops also hate the idea of implementing this because, again, it puts a little more actual right. uh, restraint on what they feel they're allowed to do. Yeah. So that all gets into how it works once a complaint is actually made. But there's also another problem here, which is uh, actually making a complaint to the police. Now, um, larger cities do have uh, do frequently have a way to file your complaint against the police uh, online, but uh, tons of departments don't. Um, probably most of them don't, uh, and many many police departments still require people to show up at the police station to pick up a paper complaint form, uh, and many people who have gone to do that. Uh, have reported that the cops simply won't give them the complaint form and that the cops will uh, intimidate them and harass them for even daring to ask for it. Um, this ranges from asking somebody their name, uh, which, like, they have no right to ask that. Um, and it's dangerous to give your cop give the cops your name when you're about to make a complaint against them. Yeah. Um, 
And but even when you do have these digitalized systems, in a lot of cases, yeah. you still have to. I mean, I, I've had times where I was, you know, talking with folks who had to make a complaint because they saw, you know, oh, I'm thinking of a good example, cop just speeding through a red light without putting their lights yeah. on. Yeah, they're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to put their lights off. They're going no. through a red light, and they, there is some argument. Maybe they're rushing off to some thing that was actually, you know, called in that is possibly an emergency. They still are required to put their lights on. Sirens, not necessarily if it's a shooting, because they're supposed to be, you know, sneaky when they're showing up at the scene of a shooting. But they still put their lights on because otherwise it's a massive, like, health hazard of having a car just shoot through a red light. But if you see a cop shoot through a red light and you get, you know, plate number or car number and you call it in, they're going to ask your name. They're going to ask where you saw it. They're going to ask what vehicle you drive. They're going to ask what uh, your driver's license number is or your social security number is. And they're going to do this all under sort of a veneer of legitimacy because they're saying that, well, we need to make sure that this is that, that you're actually making a real complaint. And we have to get all this information on you because otherwise we'd have folks calling in all the time to like point out you know, random made up yeah. stories about cops, which is kind of a BS answer in a day and age when cop cars have cameras in them that are running. Yeah. All the time. Supposedly. Supposedly well, running. Th- that are supposedly yeah. running all the time. I mean, but someone who's like done public defender work, like when you look at these videos of, you know, simple stuff, uh, uh, cops, you know, making a, you know, a DUI arrest or something like that. The camera starts when the officer gets in their car at the police station and it keeps going until they get back to the police station. It's yeah. not something they just flip on and off in theory. Um, because we know that reality is with, you know, either car cameras or body cameras, they switch them off occasionally. And, um, and and there are another one of those, like in theory, there are reasons why they are supposed to be able to switch them off. One of the main ones is actually interviewing underage suspects about like uh, sexual assault where there's supposed to, there's supposed to be some protections to someone reporting that they're supposed to turn their body yeah. camera off so that they can actually record, like talk to someone and get information yeah. from them without recording someone who's not consenting to being recorded. The problem is they also don't do that. <laughs> They'll leave yeah. their cameras on while talking to people and they will create more issues down the yeah. road where people then can get those files through FOIA requests or something like that. Yeah. There's some limitations, but yeah, there are, but um, yeah. So, um, cameras won't save you yeah and uh i'll put links in the description for the episode but there have also been reports that uh once cops find out who the complainant is uh in in some places uh the complainant has been harassed uh for like like cops driving by their house and driving by their like family members houses and you know just instances of harassment and intimidation outside of just uh, going to the station to pick up a complaint form. And that happens to people who actually are, you know, like uh, advocates per- pushing for some of these civilian review boards or stuff like that, where yeah. there have been, you know, like, well, they run to a cop somewhere in public and the officer's like, oh, I know you, giving the person's name right to them. And it's like having someone who has um, a high level of impunity by the state to just shoot you, who's standing there with a gun on their hip saying, Oh, I know your name. And in some way, it is reminding them, I know your name. I know what car you drive. I know where you live. I know your social security number. 
and I can get away with murder. Yeah. And they don't have yeah. to say any of that. It's just kind of known because we see it happen all the fucking time. And so yeah. there is this sort of um, uh, tacit intimidation that occurs at pretty much every level of making one of these complaints. Right. Um, and once the complaints finally get through and if uh, an officer is finally disciplined, um Almost always the officer is not disciplined for some, you know, for like injuring somebody or, or violating their, their civil rights. Usually uh, they end up being disciplined because they filled out a form wrong. Or because um, they stole drugs and were using them and <laughs> because that happens too. Um, yeah, where that happens pretty often. Where but... officers are caught, you know, like, oh, you know, this, you know, bit of drugs that you took from this crime scene, never made it back to the station. What happened with that? Um and that's not even getting into, you know, like the, when drugs disappear from a station and then are used later on to frame somebody because there's definitely videos yeah. of that going around, which are. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if it appears on video a few times, then it's probably happening, happening a lot more than that. So. Uh, that's pretty much how that system works, um, and it's pretty well understood you know, that the final bit of this is that because of all that intimidation and because of its clear uh, ineffectiveness at actually holding police accountable, um, overwhelmingly people who have legitimate claims against police officers for their use of force uh, do not make complaints um, because they think that it won't lead to anything and it puts them at risk. And they're correct. Yeah. And I mean, I have heard at least one horror story of someone who was, uh, you know, sexually assaulted by a police officer and tried to report it and it just disappeared. Yeah. And I'm actually still not sure if that person made a, uh, a complaint to some sort of you know, civilian review board or an internal investigation group or if they actually reported it as a criminal complaint. But either way, yeah. the way they described it was just it just disappeared. And when they went back later to actually ask, you know, what had happened with it, the response was essentially, I have no idea what you're talking about. Do you want to file a complaint? And <sighs> because it is these bureaucratic yeah. black holes, complaints can just disappear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that gets to, you know, what one of the other options is for trying to hold police accountable, and that's to make a criminal complaint. So in most states, there are two ways to do this. Um, you can either go to the police and file a complaint, and, and then the police uh, have the discretion to, you know, to, to choose whether they're going to investigate it or not. Um, Which, again, has the same sort of problems of you know, going down to the police station to make a complaint. And, yeah. and one of the other issues that's uh, come up recently is the idea that you, you know, in a lot of cases you have to either have the officer's name or badge number. You can't just say, well, I was here at this time and there was a cop there and I saw him, you know, um, yeah. I saw him mug this old lady walking on the side of the road. They're going to say, okay, wait, no, you know, did you get the guy's name? Did you get his badge number, car number, license plate, something. Yeah. And the issue with that has been shown, I think, with a lot of these current protests. Um, I saw a lot of police officers, I think it was New York 
who were wearing these black bands over their badges. Mm-hmm. Well, and Seattle and Portland and a bunch of other places. Well, that's what I want to get into is yeah. that like of a lot of them were doing this. And and in New York, the, re- the, the reason they said they had these little black bands they're wearing over their badges, so covering the actual yeah. – uh, <sighs> covering their numbers, was yeah. because it was them showing respect to uh, officers who had died from COVID-19. And it was a morning band. And yeah. um, – well, otherwise you don't you'll have see, to put that on your badge. And otherwise, you usually see a lot of protests. Is uh, cops have somehow perfected the way to stand, where they cross their arms that in just the right position to cover their badge number, name, and if they're wearing one, body camera. And it's like, yep, yep they can just say, like, "Oh, I just have my arms crossed. I wasn't thinking about it." Um, but what yeah, you're talking about, I think, is like places like you know Portland, Seattle, New York, who have had. Um, officers actually taping up over their badges and usually writing some sort of identifying number on it. And actually, again, uh, Portland police bureau just okayed this uh, for their officers to continue doing, I believe like ad infinitum, they can just keep doing it now. And the reason they give for it is that uh, they believe that some officers, well, again, they allege that some officers were doxxed, that they had their private information leaked online. And I mean, so because of they could stop being cops, I mean, they could stop. And then, and then that wouldn't happen to them. I, I mean, the other question is, you know, like what actually is stopping that from someone in theory filing an actual lawsuit and then getting the officer's name and then releasing it. Yeah. Online. The, 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 also, they're public employees. Yeah. Like lawsuits are public. Um, I mean, in most cases, you know, if it's, it's a court file document, it is publicly accessible. Yeah. And so these officers who show up and actually, you know, are on the record because they usually are for criminal cases, their, their names are already out there. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But if these officers at protests who, again, you know, like the uh, police chief in um, uh, uh, Portland was saying that they actually, you know, uh, had allegedly had some officers who were doxxed and had their information released – uh, they said that, like, well, there's you know danger yeah. to them and their families, and so we're going to allow them to just cover so, up their badges or their name tags with pieces of tape and write down some identifying number that we give them. And that way, if you see that number, you can actually report it to us, and we'll be able to go through our systems and tell you who that actually is because yeah. we can track it down. Which, in theory, and, isn't that the fucking point of a badge number? Yeah. And and also this is coming from the same people who proudly announce all of the personal details of every person they arrest. And, and not even just that, but getting I mean, arrested means you get doxxed. But, so, but 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 not even just that where I mean like there was the uh thing just yesterday where there were the three New York officers who went to a steak shack and reported that they had been poisoned by steak shack employees. And the police union there, like, immediately released this, like, press release saying, uh, we have reports that these employees at this particular steak shack were trying to assassinate NYPD officers. And what that means, of course, is that people who are these thin blue line nut jobs are going out to this steak shack that was very publicly announced and going and harassing and threatening the employees there. Yeah. It's 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 a very different thing when uh, you say, okay, well, like, you know, here's this police officer who I saw beat up somebody and here's their name versus, okay, there are these people working at this steak shack and just go get them now. Yeah. Yeah. It's and and essentially what they did was the like the thing that doxing is supposed to do. 
is we told, you know, we, we made this accusation and then we're going to tell people, you know, the people who did it and where they are. And free, the expectation with doxing is that other people will take action using that information. So like it's stochastic terror. Yeah. Um, and cops are organized terror, so it fits together well. Um, yeah. So that takes us to, like, yeah, and all that is also like other methods to fight accountability and to maintain imp- impunity by making police officers anonymous uh, or as anonymous as they possibly can. Yeah. Uh, again, from the same people who publish the names and addresses of people who, who have been arrested. So, uh, yeah, fuck them. So, <laughs> uh, you can't, like, good luck making a criminal complaint to the police about the police. So, in most states, you also have the option to go and direct it, you know, and, and report it directly to the prosecuting, you know, to the, to the prosecuting attorney, district attorney. Um, that's not nearly as frequent as going to the police, uh, and then it's in the hands of the prosecutor to decide whether they're going to ask the police to do an investigation of the police. Uh, we keep coming back to this one. Well, because, um, I, I mean, <laughs> this was brought up a lot with, you know, uh, Kamala Harris while she was running for, um, you know, president. And the uh, one of the complaints that uh, liberals had is that leftists kept calling her a cop. And they're like, no, she's not a herself? cop. Well, yes, she called herself the top cop because... DAs are cops. DAs um, are cops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so I, 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 I want to address that. Yeah. So so w- people say DAs are cops. What does that mean? Um, what it means is that their interests and their actions align with those of the police. Um, and if those two things are true, then you're a cop. Um. Well, no, because I think that there are a lot of folks whose interests and actions align with the police who are not cops, who are just, you know, random folks who just like the cops. Again, the thin blue line dumbasses I brought I, earlier. There, there's a difference. I mean, I, I'm differentiating between like a, like actual action that they that people take. Like peace police at protests are also cops. I, they're not the same as like the organized state uh, system of police, but... But the state of mind. That's the distinction I want to make, though, is that a lot of these uh, DAs, if you, you know, contact your DA and you make a report to them about the police, you might think, oh, it's the DA. Their job is to prosecute people. They're going to go and prosecute people. And I think it's actually a misconception people have about DAs is that we've mentioned before that both of us think DAs are lazy and we might lose some DA followers from that, which... Oh, God, no. (laughs) But they are allowed to pick and choose what cases they want to prosecute based on how easy it's going to be to prosecute someone or whether or not they think it is, you know, judicially expeditious or whether or not they think it's going to actually serve some sort of public good. And yeah, and this uh, this, uh, you know, the legal phrase for it is prosecutorial discretion. Um, So. They have the discretion this, to decide what they prosecute. Right. Um, or the discretion to decide what they're going to bring to a grand jury uh, to prosecute. So once the prosecutor has this complaint in their hands, they can, 
you know, order an investigation by the police. Um, usually, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are on whether they usually do that or not. Um, I would suspect that they probably do it, but then the cops like half ass it. Um, but I, well, you also remember you know, like, they're, they're, in, in, in criminal prosecution, you also remember who is turning over evidence to the DA. Right. And it's not, it's um, not, it's not PIs. Yeah. It's not, it's not private investigators. Yeah. It is the police who are handing over information. And so if there yeah. are DAs who have to rely on that pipeline of police providing them information so they can do their for all job of their cases, for all of yeah. their cases, they're not going to want to piss those people off. And they don't. DAs and cops they get along really well. Yes, they do. Um, so let's say, though, that that prosecutor decides, okay, I have evidence. Uh, I do have to bring this to a grand jury. So most states use a system, and the federal government, use uh, a system of charging people with a crime. So like when you get arrested, that doesn't mean you've been charged with a crime yet. Uh, that just means that you've been arrested on suspicion that you, you know, on because the cops believe that you did that. Um, because they, in theory, have a reasonable yeah. and articulatable suspicion. <laughs> well, probable cause, right? Probable if you're cause. Getting that, that's for being stopped. Sorry. So, that's for having being yeah. physically stopped is reasonable and uh, articulatable suspicion. But if you yeah. are so, being arrested, which, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, the whole, the whole like, yeah, just getting arrested doesn't mean you're being charged. Uh, so the whole charging process is a separate thing that's done by the district attorney. And the district attorney, in most places, utilizes a grand jury. So a grand jury, is, it is a jury, right? It's, it, you know, you can get called up for jury duty and you could end up on a grand jury. Grand juries are, uh, they last longer than trial juries. Um, so they can sit for uh, weeks or months. Um, and their job is to listen to the evidence that is presented to them by the prosecutor and only the prosecutor um, and decide whether that evidence is sufficient to charge someone with a crime. So we talked about the issues with trial juries. Uh, yeah. All those same issues apply to grand juries. You have a lot of people who are not trained uh, in the law and in legal reasoning. And, um, and I would argue probably don't really have a good understanding of, of the rules they're applying. And so, but, but, but one of the uh, other issues though, is that because it is uh, one sided, that evidence is being presented by the prosecutor, right. that there are, um, I guess what you can call inconsistencies <sighs> that can pop up in grand jury proceedings that normally, uh, as a defendant, you would have someone representing you who could contest this. And I, I want to bring up a particular case, um, which is uh, the, the, the the slaying of Mike Brown that happened down in Ferguson in 2014. And the grand jury proceeding for that took, uh, I believe, 25 days, um, like o over a span of multiple months. And it was one of the things that was kind yeah. of presented to the public repeatedly through that time span saying like, hey, look, the grand jury is hearing stuff. Wait till it comes out. Wait till it comes out. Wait till it comes out. And yeah. uh, the grand jury decided to not charge uh, Darren, to not charge Darren Wilson, yeah. who was the police officer who killed Michael Brown. 
And uh, transcripts uh, came out shortly afterwards of some of these uh, witnesses they had in there. And they had, I think, like 60 to 80 witnesses. They had a huge number of witnesses. But the one who I want to talk about was witness number 40, um, who gave an immensely – and you can find this online. If you look up uh, witness 40, Mike Brown, grand jury, the case itself was actually called State of Missouri versus Darren Wilson – the uh, uh, jury number 40 had this really fantastic story about what she witnessed that day. And she's someone who had a uh, clear um, bias. She talked about how she was actually only in uh, St. Louis that day because she wanted to go down and drive around in black neighborhoods to see how all the N-words lived. Um, for fuck's sake yeah and um but she talked like about she had a great you know you know great experience with black people and she like always had like fun around her life but she wanted to be like down here and just see that and she told several different uh competing accounts of what she had seen that day um she i believe is the person who initially told the story of mike brown doing some sort of like football charge and she's the person that the phrase came from that was repeated, I believe, by like you know Fox News and all of them. Although I can't remember if it was repeated by uh, police first. Uh, that Mike Brown looked like a demon, his eyes glowing. Um, and there are some questions whether or not this person, uh, witness forty, was I mean competent to give testimony. Um, whether or not that should have been believed, it's unclear yeah. from any of my readings of it whether or not it was ever you know raised by. Uh, anyone throughout the proceedings, whether or not this should be taken credulously. But she was someone who really did seem to have either a desire to be part of this because she was just bored and wanting to be part of this big name case, or if she was someone who actually had an agenda to, you know, push this story that Mike Brown was a a bad person. Um, Yeah. And, with that, you know, when, when that grand jury proceeding ended up uh, producing, like, no charges against Aaron Wilson, uh, that was when a lot of, like, the Ferguson protests really began kicking off because they'd been going slightly before then. But it was at that point back in, I think, oh, I don't know what date, when that was, but that's when it all of a sudden started, like, firing up again. I think it was back in December of 2015, or sorry, 2014. yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a phrase that's come up that I remember coming up around then that um, in a grand jury proceeding, a a DA or a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. And that's I think a judge said that. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea is that, like, the the prosecutors have so much power. By prosecutors, I do mean DAs, have so much power in grand jury proceedings that it really doesn't matter who they're trying to indict or why they can indict them. They yeah. can present all the evidence they want in whatever order they want, and they can get exactly what sort of outcome they yeah. want. Or however little evidence they want. Yes, because that's what happens when it comes to police who are subject to grand jury proceedings. They are able to present, uh, the, the, the DA is able to present uh, very subpar evidence and say, well, look, this is like, you know, what we're, we're the state prosecutor yeah. and this is all we've got right now. So, yeah. Oops. So it's yeah. So when a grand jury fail, you know, fails to indict, it's because the prosecutor wanted them to not do it. 
Um, I think that's a fair statement to make across the board. Um, Because otherwise they don't convene a grand jury. Yeah. And it's one of the other issues with grand juries is that, again, it's another it's like the civilian review boards. It's like bringing in regular people as cover for what they're going to do anyway. Yeah. Um, which is nothing. They're going to do nothing almost always. Have we ever so, used the phrase, uh, veneer of, uh, of legitimacy veneer, yet? <laughs> veneer of, yeah, well, <laughs> we're, we'll call it that. Another, another veneer of legitimacy. Uh, it's starting to peel. But yeah, so let's say the prosecutor has so much pressure that they know they have to charge. We've seen a little bit more of that recently, thankfully. But um, let's say they know they have to charge in order to make sure that more buildings don't get burned down. Um, So they can charge somebody. And then usually what happens is they undercharge. you know, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, this was a very particular, like, uh, that point was made. It it received a lot of public attention. Yeah. It received a lot of public attention when, uh, Derek Chauvin was charged with, uh, third degree murder and manslaughter and the alternative. Um, and then, you know, it took four days of rioting to get them to, you know, for more days of writing in order to get them to uh, actually charge him with second degree murder, which uh, I have to retract a statement I made earlier, arguing that uh, that it should have been first degree murder. After talking to some of my public defender friends, they. Uh, <laughs> yeah. See, called it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we got to own when we're wrong. And I was wrong. So uh, who said who said that, like, in the very most like technical, if you were going to go like by the strictest interpretation of what we read in law school, maybe, but, um, but really second degree murder is the appropriate charge. So with that being said, uh, the point still stands that he was undercharged to begin with. And they came with a bunch of lame excuses for that. Um, and then did it four days later, which just demonstrates that they could, you know, they, they had the power to do it and they knew they did. Um, this happens, all across the board is undercharging. Murder gets charged as manslaughter. Um, manslaughter gets charged as assault. Uh, just stuff like that. Um, so if they're ever charged at all, they're frequently undercharged. And the reason for being undercharged, obviously, is like less accountability, right? Um, because in, in many states, uh, for your first felony, you're not going to prison. Uh, you're going to get probation. Um, murder is one of those exceptions where like, even if it's your first murder, you're still going to prison. Yeah. Um, so well, undercharging I, I, big problem, but addressing, you know, uh, charging and probation and all of that, uh, can we discuss, um, sort of the, 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 the charging guidelines or the sentencing guidelines that people receive? Yeah, I was about to get to that. Okay. So Let's say, all right, you got charged, you had your trial, the jury convicts, right? So normally what happens after that is the judge schedules a sentencing hearing uh, that happens a couple days later, maybe, or the next week. Um, And at that sentencing hearing, uh, the state and the defense are allowed to bring in uh, 
a lot of the time, like some kinds of like character evidence come in, you know, and say, well, I mean, people can may... have like their their family come in or their employer come in when they're being uh, sentenced and say, yeah, look, this person is actually a really good person. Here's some stories about how they've been a good person. Yeah. Um, and usually, you know... if there if it is a crime that has a, a victim attached to it, usually the victim is allowed to make statements at that point saying how they're yeah. affected by it. Or yeah. the victim's family or coworkers or so on. Um and the, yeah. yeah. And typically and typically the statements are kind of like people testifying on uh, you know, coming to testify for the you know, for the defendant or, or basically saying like we agree that he should be accountable for his actions. Uh and so we're asking the court uh to, you know, not you know, to to, assen- to essentially be lenient because that's going to be better. Uh, for him, and that's going to be better for everybody else, society and community. Um, yeah. And then, of course, the state and uh, the state makes, you know, the the you know the other side, which is like uh, the uh, they're not a, always going. Yeah, a to society. they don't always come for like the strictest. Uh, they don't always make that too. Like I, I will try to be fair about this and say that most of the time, prosecutors are not saying that this person is a menace and evil. But they do frequently uh, go for something higher than is probably reasonable uh, by their own standards. So, and then victims are a toss-up. Uh, usually, victims will probably testify, you know, for uh, more severe sentencing against uh, uh, against the defendant. But, but again, there are numerous cases of defendants who come in and say, you know, say to the judge, like, "I understand what he did was wrong. I felt harm from it." I'm trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get, uh, put this behind me and find closure. And the way for me to do that is to make sure that, uh, I'm not, you know, that I'm not enabling any further harm to him because I'm not, you know, because I don't believe in an eye for an eye, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not sure which one that was. It was a recent guy. It's one of those ones that got, God, they all fucking blur together. Um, it was a recent killing that ended up with, uh, like the defendant's family coming in and being like, yeah, we don't want to like, you know, yes. I don't know who this was. Talk about that one. Oh, good. So, yeah. Um, so that takes us to under sentencing for cops, right? Yeah. Um, so overall, we're mostly talking about felonies, uh, for, you know, for people who are not aware of felonies or crimes that, uh, put you in prison for more than a year. Um, so if you're going to be incarcerated for more than a year, you go to prison. Uh, if you're incarcerated for less than a year, you go to jail. That's the difference. Uh, and misdemeanors are crimes that are, you know, less than a year in jail. Yeah. So, uh, we're talking mostly about felonies, uh, because we're talking about like murder and manslaughter and, and like, uh, very, um, heinous, very egregious assault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so most in many states, uh, I, I don't, you know, I've only, I've only like, I only know the law specifically for the two states that, that I, uh, have been or am licensed in. Um, and, uh, they use something called sentencing guidelines, which I shit you not. <laughs> it's a, it's a grid. Like it's, it's like somebody made it in Excel. It's a little grid, uh, it's you know, a matrix. With, the matrix has, yeah. Um, you know, with one side of it being the number of previous convictions and the other side of it being the severity of the crime. 
and basically, you know, in sentencing hearings, after hearing, you know, after hearing the evidence, the judge and the prosecutor and the defense will all bring their little bring their little fucking cheat sheet and stare at it they all bring for a minute in court and their d20s and yeah they sit there and they roll dice and they get their little figure no um um yeah well honestly sometimes it feels like the prosecutors definitely roll the dice but um essentially what happens most of the time is the prosecution says well we want this more severe side within within this like uh you know, within the like wiggle room inside of this box, uh, this category, you know, between like two years of probation or five years of probation with like a hundred days of a suspended jail sentence. Right. Stuff like that. Um, you know, so the, so within that like little box, uh, prosecutors tend to ask for something more severe defense asks for something less severe. And then most of the time the judge sort of like meets it in the middle. Which raises a problem um, when the prosecutor is prosecuting a police officer and is maybe less inclined to get the uh, more severe sentence. And it's right. they're looking for maybe a little more reduced sentence to show that they're willing to play ball with yeah. these officers that they work with. So um, in the case of less severe felonies, um, in a lot of places, certainly in the places where... Uh, you know, that, that I'm aware of in, in the jurisdictions that I've worked in. Um, for your first felony um, that isn't murder, you're not going to prison. Um, it's probably going to be more like two years on probation with like 90 days of a suspended jail sentence, which they can hold over your head. Um, oh, and I, I, I've, seen, know, I've so, seen that like personally with folks who like are on their first felony and are like, oh yeah, no, like you're going to be getting, yeah, like, half a year suspended jail time and then five years probation, 10 years probation. Yeah. And su and suspended jail time is just a jail time that the court has decided it's not going to force you to do, but it, that it can force you to do if you violate the terms of your probation. So this is where there's also more lenience for cops. So the way that most probation violations are reported is from the probation officer. The probation officer who is assigned to, you know, who has defendants assigned to them who are serving probation is also a cop. Well, and so this you have, issue as well, because we earlier mentioned the fact that like, during these sentencing hearings that you get to hear from witnesses and the state's witness that they almost always bring is the uh, probation and parole board or similar uh, organization. And they will have a report they have compiled about this person and about, you know, maybe mental health evaluations, maybe psychological evaluations, maybe job reports, usually something yeah. showing do they have family in town? Are they making a good income? Are they uh, going to keep their employment? Uh, all these factors that they put together. And so this uh, kind of extra wing of the state is allowed to present their own side of how detailed or how intense the sentencing should be. And that yeah. is alongside the prosecutor saying, we agree with this or we disagree with this yeah. for these reasons. Yeah. Again, the people making these recommendations are still part of the police department. Yeah. So um, those recommendations might be made if they get probation. Uh, they're reporting to a probation officer who's also a cop, which means that they're very, very unlikely to report any probation violations that this convicted cop uh, is committing. Um, so 
yeah, there, <laughs> that that just, that fact just stands for itself. Yeah, um, I mean, so if you if another really expecting that. If you're expecting that, you know, probation officers are equally fair to everybody they work with, it's I mean, they're not. <laughs> no, I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're not. not. And it's not it's not even just a um, an issue of, you know, uh, well, they're going to defend cops because they're a cop, but they defend people who look like them. They end up you know, yeah. people who yeah. like, have a steady job or have a state job a lot more and not defend, but uh, but um, yeah. just lighter potential sentences than they would for someone who yeah. is maybe of a different racial group or ethnic group or class or different uh, percentage of the population that they are not part of. Yeah. So that's kind of the probation issue. So for things like murder, uh, you're, you're not going to get probation. <laughs> no. you're, you're going to prison. Uh, even if you're a cop, you're still going to prison. Um, and so that brings up the issue of uh, if, if, having if, lighter if convicted. That's the yeah. If convicted, yeah. Um, and uh, that means infrequently when cops get convicted, unless there's you know some different circumstances, uh, they're gonna get very few years comparatively uh, in prison. And in uh, I think all states, but certainly most states, um, you're allowed to have parole. Uh, there is no parole from federal prison, but yeah. um, you can get parole uh, from state prison. Uh, and that means that frequently, even if you're, say, sentenced to a 25 year, you know, or a 20 year, 15 year sentence uh, for, say, third degree murder um, or second degree murder, that you're probably going to be out significantly sooner than that, so long as you don't like commit any more serious crimes in prison and certain states have what are called um like minimum sentence crimes or a minimum statutory sentence crimes where there actually is a specific minimum yeah, sentence mandatory minimums that you have to serve before you are eligible for parole and um uh, murder is one of the ones that usually is part of that set of crimes um yeah sexual assault as well um usually most crimes involving minors uh, including like yeah. abuse and neglect um those right. usually involve mandatory minimum sentences um, yeah. And, and so that will limit parole options for, uh, you know, say officers convicted of murder. Uh, yeah. But it's not guaranteed for all states. It's a state by state. Uh, like statutory yeah. scheme. And basically and basically parole is the prison equivalent of probation. Yeah. Um, so. Well, the other issue that you didn't. It's a, yeah. Quite a so, so an example. But I, I want to mention as well is that um, a lot of the time, if you are just sentenced to a jail sentence, if it's just, you know, uh, maybe like three months in jail or something like that, uh, jails across the country are very full. And in a lot of cases, they will send yeah. you off to go do either, you know, uh, community service or they're going to get you an ankle bracelet and have you do home arrest yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And uh, a lot of those uh, are not determined by the court the court will just send you to jail and you'll talk to the folks at the jail and say, Hey, can I be eligible for this? Because you don't want to hold me here. And I don't know any numbers on this, but I really imagine if you were a police officer and you walk into the jail in your uniform and you say, Hey, I've been sentenced to two months. Uh, is there any chance that I could do community service instead? I'm pretty sure they just rubber stamp the fuck out of that. Oh, of course. 
Yeah. And I, I imagine they also um, probably do have justification for it by saying, like, well, you don't want to put officers in jail because they're at more threat because inmates yeah, might attack them. Danger. Because, yeah. It's like, well, I don't know. Reap what you sow. But <laughs> um, uh, in any case, uh, an example of this sort of lighter sentencing uh you know, in a pretty recent case, uh, I think it was last, yeah, just last year, uh, was in the case of Amber Geiger. So Amber Geiger was a Dallas oh, uh, police officer um, who, I mean, people will know about this. This was way up in the news. Yeah. Who she claims accidentally uh, entered, uh, I think it was... Um, it was the apartment directly I'm below hers. Yeah, Um so, yeah, this was the murder of Joshua Brown. There we go. Um, so, um, no, Botham Jean. Botham. Okay, I got it mixed up. Botham Jean. This was the the murder of Botham Jean, who uh, he was sitting in his apartment, um, and you know this Dallas police officer Amber Geiger, who lived in an apartment on the floor above his, uh, you know, came into his house, um. There is some kind of an argument, uh, some yelling at least, maybe not an argument. Uh, she was drunk and she shot and killed him uh, in his own home. He was unarmed. Um, and uh, what the evidence, such as it is, shows is that there is no justification whatsoever. Yeah, she was drunk. Um, she was in the wrong place. She had a gun. She shot yeah. him because she was scared. Um yeah, we're being yeah. charitable here. So uh, she was uh, sentenced to 10 years for murder, 10 years for murder. And 10 years for murder is a light sentence in the United States of America. Uh, in America, we like we love to throw the book at, at murderers. Um, Life, no probation. And, and so like <laughs> 10 years in Texas, uh. 10 years in Texas. Um, that is a light sentence. Uh, and I'm not saying that we should have prisons. I think we should abolish prisons and I don't think that we should hold almost anybody for 10 years, but if we're going to fucking do this, then she should be getting more than that. I mean, if we have uh, a system, so, that's the, you know, yeah, if this is the system we're working in, then okay. Fucking game on. Um, she should be, she should be in there for much longer. Uh, so she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, at the sentencing hearing, the judge hugged her and gave her a Bible. I have never heard of that ever happening yeah. at a sentencing hearing. That is unheard of. Yeah. So that no, happened. Um, um, but we, you know, the witnesses are allowed to give uh, statements. And that was one of the key things that happened there was that, or not witnesses, um, victims, victims, family, and um, uh, Botham Jean's, uh, I believe, brother yeah. uh, came up and uh, also talked to her and said, you know, and also I think gave her a hug, yeah. if I remember right. Yeah. And uh, basically said, like, yeah, we forgive you. Our family forgives you. It was like a drunk mistake. Yeah. Don't. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, you know, you, it's, you shouldn't be, and I'm not going to, for the, yeah. And I'm not going to sit here and question what, you know, how a person feels 
and and what goes in their thinking process about whether they forgive somebody who has so deeply harmed them. Yeah. Um, um, you know, but that, but that is, yeah. A thing I do want to point out about that case is that uh, one of the key witnesses uh, yes. for Botham Jean in this case, Joshua Brown, was yeah. killed 10 days uh, after, after testifying. testifying. Uh, two days after the trial ended and she was convicted. Yeah. Um, in rather suspicious circumstances. So to the, point the where police... last December, his family was like, we want independent investigation because we don't believe it's yeah. properly investigated. Yeah. Because the police said that it was a drug deal gone wrong and that there were three suspects who they captured uh, and that he had 12 pounds of marijuana, like 140 grams of like THC, um, like, you know, for, for vape pens. Oil or shatter. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then like four thousand dollars in cash, which like, dude, if you got twelve pounds of weed, then you're gonna have more than four dollars, four thousand dollars cash. But um, the thing that like makes it really, I mean, obviously the timing is very suspicious. But the other thing that's very suspicious is like, who the fuck is gonna drive three hundred miles to go and buy weed? Well, that's the other thing too, is that it was like he was found with weed and money on him killed after a supposed bad drug deal yeah which um <laughs> this would not be the first time the cops have have done that if they did it um big old scare quotes there yeah if so um there are other cases though of uh people being murdered because they testified or were planning to testify against cops, uh, including uh, other cops who, uh, you know, who testified against well, I mean, officers I mean, that, who that's were like one of the violating like, the plot points of the movie Serpico, right? Where it's like that he, you know, testified against I don't the know officer. the movie. It, it, it's, I can't remember who was the star. Yeah. But it's a movie about, um, and I, I might be mixing up movies in my head. I haven't seen it in a long time. But uh, testified against fellow officers, and it's in the middle of like, and shortly after that, in the middle of some raid on an apartment, and he gets shot, and it's like, all the investigations, like, yep, you were shot by somebody in the apartment. And it's like, well, he actually was shot in the back. And it's one of those like, you know, the movie is based on true events, yeah. and that is supposedly part of the actual story is that it was someone who was testifying against other officers and he yeah. was allowed to lead these dangerous raids because he was going to be the guy who got shot or yeah. maybe was shot in the back. Yeah. Um, so that is kind of the general way that the civil, the, 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 the criminal, like the, the criminal process fails at holding cops accountable. It fails at every step at holding them accountable. Um, and so, you know, as we've seen, the administrative process fails at every step, uh, usually because the cops are investigating themselves and nobody else can. Uh, it fails at every step in the criminal process, usually because cops are investigating themselves and the prosecutors who rely on the cops to do their job uh, don't want to you know, don't want to prosecute. But that's why we have civil courts, right? Isn't that why we can actually sue cops? So if they really that is, like, that is why we have. Yeah, that is why we have civil courts. So why is um, that? Because, uh, so what I would say is that civil courts are actually the most effective way to hold police accountable, but they're not actually very good at it. So of, of the three shit options, 
civil lawsuits are the most effective, I would say. But there are a lot of problems. And as with the other two methods of holding police accountable, they fail every step of the way. Um, so a civil suit is usually what, what you hear about when you like sue the cops for police brutality, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what we're talking about. Uh, and this is really, in the grand scheme of things after yeah. the cops are found innocent so, criminally. Yeah. So this is a really expensive and time consuming process going, you know, a civil lawsuit. Um, it's not something that the average person can do by themselves. Uh, you know, in my own practice as, uh, as an attorney, I don't practice now, but when, when I did practice, I have dealt with people who represent represented themselves and, uh, that was enough, like, to demonstrate to me, um, you should never, ever represent yourself in civil court or criminal court. Don't ever represent yourself. Get a lawyer if you can. Um, I mean, as, so think, as a lawyer, I also support this idea. Yeah. <laughs> pay me um, yeah. So, but like at the same time, uh, if you're representing yourself in a civil case like this, um, you're not going to do well because I mean, in almost every case, you're not going to do well because one, it takes a huge amount of time and you probably don't have the time Two, you're working in a system where you're at a severe disadvantage in comparison to the lawyer for the cop. Um, because the cop's going to have a lawyer. Oh, they're going to have a uh, lawyer probably, you know, probably. Yeah. And the government is going to have, they have lawyers paid for with your taxes. So, well, and that um, comes up too because a lot of cases you're not simply suing the officer, especially if it's like yeah, we're gonna get to that. Okay, we'll get to that. Then. Yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get to that. Um, so I just like I want to really emphasize like how expensive and time consuming this is. So the average so so if you get an attorney to represent you for this, luckily you don't nor you you wouldn't yeah don't ever pay an attorney to represent you when you're suing the cops for police brutality. Normally though, the process going on there is the attorney has to make a determination uh, about whether it is financially a good idea for them to take your case, which means that uh, you have to have been pretty severely injured and suffered some pretty bad brutality for them to know that they're gonna get enough in damages to make their work worth the time they put in um, because that attorney is fronting all of the money and time. Um, and that's what's what we call a contingent fee structure. Yeah, which a lot uh, of civil cases are based on those, particularly tort cases. Yeah. Cases where you've been injured by somebody. Right. So what this means is that um, in all likelihood, somebody who has been had their civil rights violated uh, and wasn't like severely injured um, is not going to see any justice through the civil system because no lawyer is going to take their case and they, and they're not going to represent themselves in civil court. And that's just the end of it. That's over. Um, so, uh, for the time consuming process to give people kind of an idea of how long this takes, uh, a lot of like police brutality cases will take anywhere from one to three years before they reach a settlement before trial. And if you're not aware how much uh, private lawyers usually charge, um, we're talking, I mean, what's a generous estimate? 
three hundred dollars an hour for two for two hundred and fifty dollars an hour for suing the the government. Yeah, yeah, three hundred. Like I would say it would top out at around three hundred, um, but probably more likely to be between like two fifty and three hundred right now. So in in most places, three years having a uh, serious time consuming engagement that costs you three hundred dollars an hour. That's... As the attorney, because the, because you're not like as the client, you're not paying for that. No, 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 no. In this no. situation, yeah. But that's something that not a lot of attorneys are going to take on unless they believe they have sort of an absolute shoe-in case. Right. So um, it can take one to three years before you get a settlement. And usually the settlements take a long time to negotiate. And uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of... Uh, Plaintiffs, you know, plaintiffs are the people who are claiming the injury. So, you know, the the victims in this situation. Uh, Frequently, the problem with uh, with settlements is that you're not actually seeing much justice, right? Because usually, the government says we will pay to make this go away, and we're not going to admit wrongdoing. Well, and occasionally, we're going to have you sign an NDA or some other thing that says like, and you can't talk yeah. to the press about this afterwards. You can't, you know, yeah. NDA non-disclosure agreement. I mean, if you have yeah. been paying attention to politics in the last, you know, five years, you, you know what NDAs are probably. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of the issues. Now let's say you don't get a settle- settlement, then you go to trial. That's going to add at least another year on to the amount of time it takes uh, to get your case. So now you're looking at more like, two to four years before you're really going to see something close to justice. Maybe, um, if you win, uh, it's possible for the government to appeal that. And then that will add another year, uh, probably onto it, um, for it to go to, yeah, people, yeah, a couple years beyond that. Yeah. People. Yeah. This is almost always in the federal system of courts. So it would go to the, the federal circuit courts. Um, so it just takes for fucking ever. Uh, and by this time, uh, you know, for everybody else, probably they've forgotten about it. And as the victim, you're one of the only people who remembers, unfortunately. Uh, and at this point, you so, might be bound to some sort of, you know. Yeah. Uh, you might actually have legal other, not not necessarily yeah. non-disclosure agreements, but, you know, uh, libel issues or slander issues that make it so that yeah. if you even wanted to complain and really raise the public's awareness of the again, you could still be charged because it hasn't been proven in a court of law yet. And if you right. have already previously lost in a, or, you know, lost, but, you know, seen a criminal trial for the officer go through, the officer could then use that in a separate civil trial against you for defamation, for libel, for slander, saying, hey, look, I was found innocent by this court, and this person's still going out and saying that I beat the crap out of them. And that could get solved faster than your appeal could get solved. And you could be on the line for money against them, even though you're still waiting for the results of your court case. Yeah. And again, it's a court case where you'll have a jury if you go to trial. And that comes with all the same problems that criminal juries do. Uh, Not all the same problems, but the different kinds of problems and still like an inherent trust of the police. All right. So, um, those are all just the fucking issues for like getting into a civil lawsuit. So now you're in the civil lawsuit and the major question is who are you going to sue? 
Uh, and most people would say, I want to sue the fucking cop who hurt me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in almost every situation, you can't do that. Uh, because of a doctrine that that has been in the news a lot recently called qualified immunity. Yeah. Um, now the bros who uh, just read about qualified immunity and are suddenly experts on it uh, will tell you that this will solve the accountability problem if we get rid of qualified immunity. So, what is qualified immunity? Uh, it is immunity that is given to police officers that. Uh, depending on their actions, they qualify for it. It's different than absolute immunity, which means it doesn't matter what the person did. They're immune no matter what. Which, I mean, like, uh, for example, uh, prosecutors in a lot of cases have higher immunity when it comes to their discretion than police do in their actions. And courts have absolute... Yes, sorry. Yeah. And courts have absolute immunity for their actions. You cannot sue a judge for doing what a judge does in court so yeah yes um so qualified immunity though right it has qualifications like you you know you're immune to this suit as a police officer uh so long as your actions fell under a certain you know certain parameters immunity in american law is a case called pearson v ray which was heard by the US, u.s supreme court um and this is from uh, I'm, re- I'm going to read from the summary that the court gave for itself. So the language is a little dated. Uh, Members of a group of white and Negro clergymen on a, quote, prayer pilgrimage to promote racial integration attempted to use a segregated interstate bus terminal waiting room, mouthful, in Jackson, Mississippi in 1961. They were arrested uh, by, a poli- uh, by the policeman and charged with uh, conduct breaching the peace in violation of Mississippi law. Uh, which this court um, two years ago held unconstitutional in Thomas v. Mississippi uh, as applied to similar facts. So petitioners waived a jury trial and were convicted by uh, the municipal police justice. So I'm going to I'm going to skip some of the summary uh, and get to some of the other evidence. So. Uh, The evidence showed that the minister is expected to be arrested on entering a segregated area. Though the witnesses agreed that petitioners entered the waiting room peacefully, uh, petitioners, the clergymen, testified that there was no crowd at the terminal, whereas the police testified that a threatening crowd followed uh, the clergymen. The jury found for the police. Um, On appeal, uh, the Court of Appeals held that the police... uh, the police justice, um, which I'm not sure quite what that refers to, but it sounds like a kind of police judge. I, I assume it's not like that or either or that or yeah. like some sort of um, yeah, he- so, head cop in the area or something similar. Yeah, it was a magistrate. So uh, it was more of like a procedural judge. So respondent police justice had immunity for his judicial acts, uh, both under Section 1983, which is ha- Section 1983 is the civil rights law that gets applied in courts. Uh, and the state common law. And the policeman had immunity under the state common law of false arrest uh, if they had probable cause to believe that that Mississippi law was valid um, since they were not required to predict that laws are unconstitutional. And that's something we've addressed previously that um, 
cops don't have to know the law. They can have a misconception. Yeah. They can be wrong, and that doesn't mean that they cannot arrest you. But that also applies to them being liable. If they do believe that they are – if an officer who was you know, arresting you could somehow show to a court that he legitimately believed that he was allowed to beat the shit out of you with a riot baton as he was arresting you, and that was legally okay for him to do – there's a chance he could get off on qualified immunity because he believed he was acting in line with what the law stated. Right. Um, and so the, the, the court realized that like, okay, this wasn't quite clear enough. And so it clarified uh, in another case, what the test is that we use to determine whether a cop gets qualified immunity. So that's from a case called Harlow v. Fitzgerald. Uh, and that's from 1982. Um, so, uh, and I'm reading from OEAs.org uh, for this case. Uh, on November 13th, 1968, A. Ernest Fitzgerald, a management analyst in the Department of the Air Force, testified before the Subcommittee on Economy and Government of the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress. God, the mouthful. Uh, regarding $2 billion. <laughs> yeah, legal speak. Um, regarding $2 billion in unexpected costs <laughs> associated with the C-5A transport plane along with its technical difficulties. Boy, they were, they didn't know that the F-35 was coming. Uh, <laughs> right? It seems so small now, you know? Oh, just $2 does. billion. Uh, What's the problem? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, in January 1970, he was fired and he believed his dismissal was in retaliation for his testimony. Uh, Fitzgerald sued presidential aides Bryce Harlow and Alexander Butterfield for civil damages and claimed they were involved in a conspiracy that resulted in his wrongful dismissal. Both Harlow and Butterfield claimed to have no knowledge of any conspiracy and asserted that their actions surrounding this issue were undertaken in good faith. Harlow and Butterfield moved for summary judgment, um, which the court denied. Uh, the district court also found them ineligible for immunity. They appealed the denial of the immunity to the Court of Appeals for the District uh, of Columbia. Um, and the Court of Appeals dismissed the appeal without issuing an opinion. So what the Supreme Court decided uh, was that um, there was actually a test. So they would grant police officers and, uh, and like in this case, it was presidential aides, but this applies to police officers. Uh, they would grant immunity um so long as the quote, uh, sorry, it's not a quote, uh, the official believed in good faith that his conduct was lawful and the conduct was objectively reasonable. So that's the standard. So in order for a police officer to get qualified immunity, that means they have to believe that what they did was lawful. No, no, no. They have to testify um, that they believe what they did was lawful. Yeah, they, yeah, they, ha they yes, um, they can lie uh, and they do. Um, even, yeah, they're not allowed to lie in court, but they do it. Um, so, uh, then the other question is whether that conduct was objectively reasonable, which, um, there, there's not really much debate about that very often because cops are almost never held personally liable. They almost always get this immunity. Well, because, uh, um, a lot of cases, jurors are easily swayed on what objectively reasonable means. Well, so I think at this particular case, because it's not exactly 
I think a judge would probably be the one to decide whether this was objectively reasonable or not. Well, this is an appeal. Um, I mean, this is Supreme Court. This is, you know, this is getting... Yeah. yeah. So it's not going to be a jury that decides on immunity, I don't think. So um, that's that sounds to me like something that would get decided on... I mean, that, uh, that, that would actually a, be a question. A that, that would hearing. be a question of law, not a question of facts. That would be decided in books. Exactly, judge, yeah. right. Um, so... Uh, you know, if they stipulate to facts and then the judge says that the, you know, that that was objectively reasonable, then, you know, that's it. Case dismissed against the cop. Um, or you bring in some so experts and say, you know, out. I'm an expert who I am, you know, also police officer. And I think that's exactly, you know, yeah. objectively yeah. reasonable. Yeah. So what this means is that you basically can't sue cops for police brutality. So the only thing that, you know, the only group that you can uh, sue is the government. Um, and so this is where a lot of people make the argument is like, well, the cops aren't held accountable because they're not the ones paying for it. Um, I think it's kind of a weak argument because like we've seen all the different ways that they're not held accountable. So getting rid of qualified immunity alone would not, I, I don't think it would really achieve a whole lot. Um, it would achieve some stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, and there's one thing I didn't want to, um, I, I, I know we don't want to get into it today because it is something that I yeah. think is we're, we're going to have to dedicate an entire episode to this at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, there's no way we can, there's no way we can do any sort of um, justice in a, like, you know, whatever remaining time we have on this episode. Um, but uh, qualified immunity is what has allowed a lot of the uh, supervisors in uh, ICE detention centers who have had reports of uh, sexual abuse of the minors who are kept there to keep their jobs. Because they can say, well, I don't know what particular ICE officer is going around sexually assaulting these kids we have locked up in cages, but I can't really be sued for it because I'm acting reasonably in taking you know, my responsibility of overseeing all of my subordinates who work here. Right. And because of that idea that they are acting reasonably, um, they're given qualified immunity and they cannot personally be sued for this yeah so uh yeah so in these cases though um this is kind of the most effective way of holding police accountable and i think as you uh, as people have heard like it's got so many issues in it um that they're not held accountable um even you know even when even when uh, somebody is able to successfully sue and get damages, it, it's the government and ultimately the taxpayers who pay for it. I think in a lot of cases, sort of the best option you get at that point is that that one particular officer or that one particular supervisor gets removed. That usually is the best case scenario. Yeah. And then someone yeah. else gets put in who, I, in theory, yeah. might be better. But in reality, yeah. might and, be worse as well. And as as you can read in so many other sources, frequently the cop is not fired, or if they are fired, in fifty percent of the time they're rehired. Um, I mean, that, that, that was with get, Darren Wilson, yeah. the guy who killed Mike Brown. Yeah. Like, wasn't he? I believe he was. Like, he had he had been fired from a poli uh, previous yeah. police department yeah. somewhere else because of uh, misconduct, and had yeah. been rehired by the Ferguson PD. I I forget the name of the cop who. Um, it w it was one of the most disgusting like p 
police violence. Like I've watched so many videos of police violence uh, in in the last like six years, um, six seven years that like I I'm unfazed by it. But I was really phased by like the description of uh, this cop who like it was in that it was in the hotel where he like told the man to like get on his knees oh and, jesus like, christ yeah his, down in Dal- yeah. Uh, dallas yeah and like put his hands on his head and now crawl um and you know and he and he had on he had his personal ar15 and engraved on uh the dust cover uh it said get fucked yeah um yeah also i think i had it wrong i actually believe it was not darren wilson who i was thinking i think it was the officer who killed tamir rice okay i mean honestly yeah. they probably all have fucking priors i mean not probably not prior um, you know, so convictions, like, but, you know, prior. yeah but this cop i was describing he got fired and then he got rehired so that he could get his pension um on the basis that he suffers ptsd from from killing uh, killing that man. I mean, I, I'm a fairly big mental health advocate, um, but I think maybe we both are. maybe certain folks should just be allowed to suffer with it. I I don't want him to suffer with it if he actually has PTSD. But... Okay, you know what? That's a fair point. If he actually has PTSD, you know, yeah, um, I, I'd say probably this is treat a guy him had... before you send him to the gulag. This is a guy who had the phrase get fucked engraved on his gun. I mean, you, you don't like, want to know what I have engraved on mine, but. I guess I don't then. Um, <laughs> so getting back, though, uh, in, in this like final bit of what we're going through, um, I want to sort of take a, a little bit of a step back and have a more systemic criticism, uh, especially of immunity. So the qualified immunity comes from the concept of sovereign immunity, right? So sovereign immunity means that uh, the government cannot be sued in its own courts which, which for it, anything historically. And does that come from the idea of like kingly privilege? Is that like is it that same it sovereign root? So, um, uh. we got this. We got the idea <laughs> of uh, sovereign immunity. We got the idea of sovereign immunity from English law. Jesus right? Christ! How often are we come back to fuck the British? Mm-hmm. We need more Irish so, listeners. Fuck <laughs> the English in particular because the Scots did not do this to us. So well, okay, I, 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 I am a proud fucking Scotsman, and I believe that no true Scotsman believes he is English so, or British. That's fair. Scotland also maintains, maintains its own system of law separate from England. Um, so uh, that is a civil law system as opposed to the English common law. So fundamentally, Scots law is just different. So... Uh, the concept of sovereign immunity comes from the general position that the English king could not be sued in the king's own courts, um, since the king was the highest authority of the courts. So essentially, like, the king is the highest judge, therefore you can't sue the king in his own court. Okay. Um, so it was basically only at the king's discretion that a grievance could be brought directly against him, and guess how well that went. Um, so... 
what happened with America and, and with liberalism generally, right, with, with the idea of having a republic where you get rid of the king and instead you essentially have an elected executive or not an – you don't even – Republics don't even have to be democratic. No, they, they just don't. have to I have mean... limited terms. So you have someone who is like a temporary executive uh, with defined terms. That's a republic. It can be a democratic republic, though I've never seen one. Um, what about the Democratic People's so... Republic of North Korea? Yeah. Move on. Um... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so. What I would say is that the question of immunity generally is like, it's a toxic legal doctrine. I mean, there are so many toxic legal doctrines, but um, the thing is that in America, you can sue the government, but that's only because the government has given you permission to do so, uh, usually with things like tort claims acts. So you can like sue the government if it violates a contract, or you can sue the government if they like uh, hurt you. Like if one of their employees hits you with the car in the course of their duties, you can sue them for that. Um, you know, if it, you know, just like an accident. So, um, but originally when the U S government was originally set up, you would not have been able to do that. Um, because you can't, you couldn't sue the government. Um, so, uh, Many people will say this makes sense if you're going to have a system like this, and I agree that it does make sense if you're going to have a system like this, but it's obviously a shit system and we shouldn't have it. Um, so so when we transferred to republicanism, though, in a way, it's kind of similar to how uh, capitalism uh, adapts to prolong its survival, right? Um, in the same way... Uh, America really kind of still has this sort of like royalist monarchical system of law. It's just that instead of having an actual, like they disembodied the king. They did. They disembodied the king. The king. Still the king is no longer the sovereign. Now the state has become the sovereign. Yeah. It's the, yeah. And the king is America. Like, That'd be a great so name like, for like a good progressive rock album. Maybe. Um, but what it, what it comes down to, though, is that when you create this Republican system, you know, form of government that fundamentally is not like legally is not all that different from the monarchic system of government uh, and law, um, they can sort of play act like it's not because they disembodied the king. Because it's, you know, it's really easy to hate the king. It is not easy to hate America. I mean, we learn. But... <laughs> we learn. Oh, we learn. But you, you see what I mean? No, I, it's like yes. you can you can point at the king and say the king did this, this or that. Whereas when you disembody the king and instead the sovereign is America, um, it still plays the role of the king. And that gets to a point I wanted to make, which is that I think it becomes very easy, especially under Trump right now, to have a lot of liberals pointing at the current protests, riots, uprising, whatever you want to call it, going on and saying, well, look, this is because of Trump. This is because of some dictatorial figure who believes he is the king. He's the bad guy. And I, I hate the like orange man bad memes, but those are very true. There are a lot of liberals who see that like yeah. every single problem we have right now is because we have a, uh, you know, annoying, crass fascist in charge of our country. Yeah. But 
and I think that's something that we have tried to point out a lot is the idea that this is not an immediate issue because of the current leader of our government. That is some, I mean, uh, yeah. King S fetishism of I mean, evils that are innate in our country. Donald Trump walked into the office of the presidency and then proceeded to use the powers that that office already had. But there are a lot of these issues that are ongoing within yeah. cities, within states, that are not endemic yeah. to yeah. a Donald Trump presidency. It's right. not that we have a bad king right now. We have a bad country. The sovereign we have given ourselves is bad, and the idea of having an actual well, sovereign Well, we didn't immunity, give it ourselves. But... Uh, that, that we decided our na that our nation decided it should Somebody have decided. at some point. Yeah, uh, the, the, the that the founders decided yeah, that they would impose on the rest of us. Yeah. Yes, but the idea that you know we are able to point at some figurehead, which is I still think what the presidency is, is just a figurehead at this point. Being able to point at the presidency I, and saying this is the real problem, we just need to change this and everything will be fixed. I believe is an idea that yeah. is uh, toxic liberalism. That does not address the real issue I mean, that the real sovereign in this country is the disembodied king. It is the state. Yeah. Liberalism, though, fundamentally doesn't address the problem. That is, that is kind of the point. Um, Wait, so wearing the kente cloths didn't help? Wearing the what? The kente cloths. When Pelosi and Schumer oh. and all of them came out wearing yeah, the kente yeah, cloths yeah, didn't yeah, help? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've managed to take a lot of really, really shitty photo ops lately. <laughs> Like, more than usual. But yeah. But but I think that it, that, that I think is a key distinction to make right now. That um, you know, we don't have a king, we have a state, and we're pointing out these issues, and they are not endemic yeah. of the highest political figure we have in the country at the current moment. They are endemic no. of the systems that have been enacted by the state at nearly every level. Yeah. This is a systemic problem that goes yeah. from the Supreme Court all the way down to like, you know, little municipal courts or justice courts in different places. Mm -hmm. Like it is an issue that pervades yeah. the mind of nearly every cop, pervades almost every possible outcome that you can possibly get some sort of quote unquote accountability from. And at every level, it again is just this facade. It is this veneer of legitimacy that makes us yeah. think that, sure, cops are accountable. And holy shit, no, they're not. When the next presidential contender is still saying, just shoot people in the leg, the system <sighs> is so fucking broken. Yeah. You know, it's really wonderful that I forget that Joe Biden exists most of the time. I mean, and then it's terrible when I'm reminded that he does. So I still think that's like the thing a lot of liberals want is they just want to have a president they can kind of ignore again. Yeah, well, then it's easier to ignore all of the fucking problems. Um, and like Obama was very good at that. Uh, Obama's still fucking doing it now. Um, so he's uh, he's been very good at running interference for a lot of fucking evil shit. I mean, um, as every president has done. As every, like, he's yeah, not, he's not uniquely bad. Oh, no. He's just, no. They're, they're all bad. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're all bad. And, you know, Jackson was the worst, but, you know. Yeah. Oh, no, Jackson was tried to beat him. the worst, yeah. Yeah. But plenty of others have tried to beat him, so. Uh, that's yeah, that's really what it comes down to is that um, 
as we discussed in the first police episode, uh, it's a system that was founded in white supremacy and slavery, uh, the policing is. Uh, they have enormous powers uh, and discretion to do harm to people. Uh, and then when they do that harm, um, almost no one uh, can hold them accountable for it. Uh, and I think that when you look at it, at this institution of policing and the, and the legal system that protects it, uses it, and requires it, um, that the only, I would argue, reasonable conclusion you can come to is that we just have to throw it away and start over. There is no way to reform our way out of this. There is no, there, like, we will not have actual freedom. We will not have, like, black lives will not matter until there are no cops. Period. And I think that gets to what our next um, uh, police-based episode is going to cover. Because I do want to have a very realistic conversation about what other uh, options could be, um, what some sort of hypotheticals could be, what's been put into place in different areas around the world, yeah, and uh, really address the I, what this country could look like once police have been abolished. Um, because as I brought up the and beginning, have something better put, you know, fill in. Well, because as I brought up where, the beginning of this, like in. the yeah. um, the fact that you know one of the main police responses to their own being held accountable as we're seeing in Atlanta right now is the police just not answering 911 calls. They're saying, "Sure, you want to hold one of us accountable for murdering somebody? Fine. We're not ta we're not going to have anyone answering 911 to take you to the hospital." Which is just fucking insane. And if they have that power yeah. to hold that much of like real blackmail yeah. against the people who pay their fucking you salaries, know, we really and then one of their major, yeah, and one of their major propaganda points against protesters is they don't let amb ambulances through. Like, fuck you, people, for fuck's sake. But it, it, it's yeah. they've realized recently how much power they have. <laughs> I think, like honestly, I think a lot of cops have realized like we can threaten to just walk away from this. There's a meme I've seen online pretty frequently. It has a picture of a cop like. Uh, a cop car with like the vest hanging off of the uh, like uh, yeah. driver's head window or something like that. And it says like, well, fine, you don't want us. We're just going to walk away. And the, co <laughs> the comment on it is just like Ugh. anyone who's been in an abusive relationship realizes this is like a huge red flag for an abuser is uh, yeah. fine. You don't want me. Well, fine. I'm just going to walk. Are you going to critique me? Fine. I'm just going to walk away. And it's like, if you want to hold me responsible, I'm just going to say, fuck you and walk off. And what that really means in most cases is you need to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. we're at that point with the police where I think yeah, we, we need to get the fuck out of there. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, we need to kick them out and make sure the door hits them on the way out and get a new lock afterwards. They don't come back in the different guys and then figure out how to protect ourselves to help each other. Keep people safe. Because God knows the cops aren't. 
We want to close off? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good close. Uh, um, we're probably going to release an episode that is not nearly so heavy or um, steeped in legalese because we hate legalese too. Let's pull a funny one um, from the bank next. Yeah. 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 We'll see. Well, we'll yeah. We'll, fig- we'll figure out something good for once y'all. we get there. Yeah. Um, so it's been wonderful talking. Uh, I'm glad that I'm not going to have to do this research again. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, as always, it is a long road. And uh, we don't really know where we're going. Uh, it's probably better though. By God, we'll get there together. We have to. All right. Have a good day.